Hey, it's Jordan. I am here with Steve Grumbine. Uh, you are a founder of The Real Progressives. Uh, you've had me on uh, quite a few times. And uh, I definitely, definitely have been hearing forever from my audience, both at the Young Turks and uh, at Status Coup, more MMT. And I humbly, when I don't know something, I just say I don't know it. So I know a little bit about MMT. I don't know the whole shebang. I know you've been basically screaming before this was like, a hot new topic. You've been screaming about this for years. Uh, before we get into MMT, I want to talk about something I saw on CNN this morning, which I was flabbergasted because they never actually tell the truth about the economy. So we've been hearing for basically a year now, maybe two years, the economy is booming and uh, the unemployment rate is at a you know all-time low or historic lows. Well, today was the jobs report and the unemployment rate ticked up from 3.7% to 3.9%. And the business anchor said, you know, well, let's don't get too worried about that unemployment rate going up because it actually is a good thing. It means more people are looking for work. Well, intelligent people who know who tell the truth have been saying, well, that unemployment rate isn't what we should gauge the economy by because a low unemployment rate, especially now, means hundreds of thousands of people have given up looking for work. CNN admitted today, how do we we get that truth out there wider? Because Uh, non-MMT people and basically corporate propagandists, they basically say, look at the stock market, look at the unemployment rate, things are dandy. Well, first things first, the the official unemployment rate is way low. I mean, they've skimmed off of people that are, you know, moderately employed, the people that are just sort of doing gig economy work. They've they've included everybody. I mean, so it's down to like 3.8, 3.9%. But if you look, there's several other measures, U3, U6, U5, um, and they measure different things. And as you go up, unemployment even now as uh, U6, which is including, uh, you know, everyone that stopped looking for unemployment as well, is still only about just is under 8%. So by historical measures, if you look backwards when we were vetting, you know, <laughs> practically a million jobs a month, um, you know, it, it, it is low. If you just look at it from that standpoint, however, it is indicative or indicative, excuse me, of a trend that's getting ready to really blow up. And that is we've got a lot of people who have given up looking for work. We've got people that have degrees and are well educated that are doing jobs way below their skill level. People are in a gig economy and, and these things are all at will. There is no protections whatsoever. And in one fell swoop, we could be back to a real horrible crisis in like next to no time. They're putting a Band-Aid on this. They're trying to make it seem like everything's hunky-dory. And this is not just a Republican thing. This is a Republican, Democrat. This is a this is a status quo thing where they want to make sure that we think that everything's okay. And, and quite frankly, I think the real issue is is talk to real people. The people that are out there, even the ones that are employed – they're desperate. They're scared to death of losing that job because there's nothing worthwhile out there waiting for them. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. I wouldn't be shocked to see, uh, you know, some major um, economic shocks in, in the not too far off future. Um, I, I just see a lot of things with uh, student debt and other bubbles that are just waiting around the corner. Stock buybacks, the, that business debt bubble. There's a lot of bubbles waiting to burst. And when those things burst, those unemployment numbers are going to shoot through the moon. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's talk about MMT. Uh, for, for a lot of the audience understands it. Many, many don't. 
in, in, in the concept of what we're dealing with now, so you have Nancy Pelosi essentially operating as a Republican <laughs> with PAYGO. The only difference is Republicans don't actually follow it. They give lip service to the debt and deficit, and then they blow it up. But Nancy Pelosi is putting in PAYGO. I think it's really because her donors say, you, you know, look responsible and, and give us tax cuts and, you know, subsidies. But PAYGO, I think, is a perfect example of the fallacy uh, of our economy and where MMT comes in because it says, you know, you have to offset with cuts so you don't blow up the debt or raising revenues. So can you kind of explain uh, as far as modern monetary theory why that's bunk? Well, sure. So obviously, you know, we've been stating for a long time because we live in a society where people don't have a lot of time to consume deep information. So we've been stating bumper sticker wise that, hey, federal taxes don't fund spending. People didn't quite understand what we were talking about. But now what we're seeing with this PAYGO thing is the idea that for every service that we want to implement, for every bill that we want, a Green New Deal, whatever, Medicare for all, the idea would be that we have to either cut somewhere or that we have to raise taxes to make it revenue neutral. What the reality is, is that taxes in a fiat system, which is what modern monetary theory describes, it's a lens by which we understand the way that the economy works from 1971 to present, really, when you look when we were removed from the Bretton Woods Accord. No more gold standard, no petrodollar. Sorry, guys. You know, none of this other stuff that you hear, you know, the folklore that goes around. So what we've got is a situation where the government creates money every single time it spends, whether it be for Social Security whether it be for Medicare for all, if we were going with that, whether it would be you know anything, food stamps, you name it. The government creates money with keystrokes every time it spends. Every time it taxes, it deletes that money. So it's like a circuit. And that understanding, when you understand that raising taxes doesn't pay for anything, it just de- deletes more money from the economy. And by lowering taxes, you actually allow the private sector to have more money. It's kind of weird. So you're like, am I a Republican? Am I a Democrat? What am I here? You're nothing. You're just economically literate. And and so the idea behind modern monetary theory is understanding not only what the role of money is, it's a state-based uh, uh, public utility with infinite ability to do whatever we want with it. The only real restraint or constraint, I should say, is do we have enough real resources to absorb the spending? Um perfect example would be with Medicare for all or something like that. Do we have enough doctors, hospitals, gurneys, whatever, x-ray machines? Supply, do you have enough of the supply side? Yes. Do, do we have enough of the real resources? That's the way modern monetary theory likes to point at it because it could be labor. It could be you know goods and services and so forth. Can we absorb it? And um, Stephanie Kelton, who is one of the more visible figures of the modern monetary theory movement, if you will, you know, she oftentimes will point to a moment where uh, Alan Greenspan was dueling with Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan was trying to bankrupt uh, and make private the Social Security works. And he said, wouldn't you say that private, you know, uh, savings accounts would be better? And Greenspan goes, I wouldn't say that. I would say that the government never has a problem ever meeting the needs. The question is, can we create a society that will produce the real resources that the people would need if they had that money? So you have an aging population. 
they retire. Now, all of a sudden, do we have enough productivity out there to meet the demand that will come from those people having money to spend? Right. So that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. So when you hear about PEGA, you realize that they're just talking about deleting money from the economy or, 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 or making us eat our peas, as Obama said, or tighten our belts or whatever. It's austerity. And um, it, it's foolhardy, and it's basically a self-inflicted wound if you have any intention of passing a progressive agenda. And it's clear they don't have that. Okay, so let's boil it down to my personal life. My older brother uh, is a hedge fund guy. He's actually one of the better ones. He's not like Gordon Gecko. Uh, he voted, he vo- he's voted for Democrats mostly, and he lives in his little financial bubble. So he would say to this, Jordan, that's crazy. The government, if, if you keep printing money, you, you, the, the country's going to, you know, Go on fire. You, you, you know the argument. You, you can't oh, yeah. just keep printing money. Uh, how, why is my brother and that ilk's uh, argument about printing money is dangerous uh, wrong? Well, first things first, I, if you go back to my description of taxes and the way money comes into creation, you know, Congress spends it into existence. And then it taxes it out of existence. There is no printing more money. Money is elastic. You know, money is temporary. When they spend it, it's a tax credit. So when they spend that money in, they're expecting to receive it back at some point as a tax. So depending upon the higher or lower amount of tax will depend on the higher or lower amount of spending power the people have. It's not a matter of printing more money. First of all, we don't print money anymore. It's all keystrokes. It's all electronic. Second of all, Neoliberalism, which is a word that we all talk about quite a bit, but very few people really understand, really what they've done is they've eliminated the idea of the government sector being able to spend on the people, which is fiscal policy, and they've pushed it off to monetary policy, which then in turn says, well, we're not going to fill your wallets with government-spent money. We're not going to provide goods and services like Medicare for all, et cetera. What we're going to do is we're going to push you to your brother's fund. (laughs) We're going to push you to Wall Street solutions. You're going to have to go into private debt to fill that bubble back up. And so what's the problem with private debt? Well, you and I, we only have so much money coming in, and then we're tapped out. And then they start doing predatory lending to fill us back up even more than that because, gosh, the economy is going to tank if they don't find more creditworthy people. And you keep doing that over and over and over again, and eventually you hit a debt bubble. And that bubble bursts like it did you know, back during the dot-com era with the housing market and you name it. They start selling these securities and it's like this financialization of debt starts occurring. And there's a point where it just explodes and it, it's unsustainable. The only debt that's infinitely sustainable is public debt because you, we, a country can never go broke on debt denominated in its own currency. So he's, he, he's thinking like somehow or another we just keep cranking money out like that. That's not how it is. That money is destroyed when it's received as a tax, and and it's rebirthed each time we spend. And so it's not like government doesn't save money. There's no government piggy bank somewhere. It, every dollar here's, – here's one that will blow your mind. Every single dollar the federal government spends, it's the first time it's ever spent that dollar because every time it spends, it's a brand new dollar. Every time it taxes, it destroys that money. So that's kind of the life cycle. So your brother's wrong, but I understand why. Because what we've done is we've created a a culture, a society, a neoliberal world where we look to uh, solve all of our problems through bank lending, uh, through credit cards, through payday lenders, through Wall Street investments, etc. And by literally cutting off uh, the spigot from the government – 
you've only got two choices. That's uh, being a net import, or excuse me, a net exporter, where you're bringing money in from outside. Well, we haven't been a net exporter in my lifetime. I think it's like 500 billion a year we lose. It's not lose. We we spend on goods and services. So we're trading our paper for their real hard goods yeah. and services. It's a win, right? Yeah. Um, but we're not bringing any money in that way. So we have to make it up somehow. So we either have it through fiscal spending, which they've cut the spigot off there as well, and they've pushed us to bank lending. That's the only way the economy survives, and there is a there is a uh, shelf life on that. We will explode, and that is when you have major catastrophes. And I think that's what we're going to see in the not-too-far-off future if we don't get it right. So this might be a dumb question, but so I would think if basically the government – Maybe it maybe it's wrong to think about it as printing money, but basically, if the government can cover all these things in infinity and beyond, why is the government borrowing from China? Why is the why is the government borrowing from all these countries? If in reality, I mean, these you know, Alan Greenspan's not stupid. Uh, presidents aren't stupid. Is it for show? I mean, this is real money they're borrowing when we could just we have it ourselves. So- so it's interesting you say that. So let's talk about that's a really good I'm glad you asked that question. So the national debt is nothing more than the sum total of every untaxed dollar in existence today. China doesn't create US dollars. China gets dollars from trading with us. So they can keep those dollars parked at the Fed and earn no interest or as the Fed tries to defend a positive interest rate, it will sell treasury bonds. And it will earn a nominal interest. Everybody wants bonds because they're a safe investment. They'll never go bad because we just keystroke the the interest on it. It's not a big deal. It's not taxpayer-driven at all. So what happens is, is that China takes its existing U.S. dollars and agrees to basically delay purchasing. These are not demand-type uh, things where they can just call that money out. These things are invested, and they're, they've got a time box on them. And they're sold with the intention of taking money out of the economy temporarily, um, just like war bonds back in World War II. Imagine that. We sold war bonds not to fund the war, but to take the heat off an overheating economy. We had everyone working. Every factory was at full tilt. There was no potential to make more. We were at capacity. All the real resources were used up in the war effort. So if we didn't take some of the heat off, we were going to have major escalating uh, inflation. So that's why they sold war bonds, not to fund the war. Interesting tidbit. And the reason why we sell bonds is to defend what they call a positive interest rate at the Fed. The way to stop that, I mean, because this is an anachronism, meaning that it doesn't serve any value whatsoever. It's like vestigial arms of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. They don't serve any purpose other than providing basically a basic income to the wealthy. So we could set what they call ZERP, or zero interest rate policy forever, which we had for a long time. And we don't require selling bonds to do that because you don't have to defend zero, zero is zero. If they want to go to 2% interest, all of a sudden they might sell bonds to, to maintain that 2% interest rate. But that's that's the point of it all. It's not because we're borrowing money. We don't borrow anything. We, we create it from scratch. Um, and if China doesn't want to buy our bonds, it's okay. We buy our own bonds constantly. Mm-hmm. So U.S. owns its own debt. Think about that. What, what? <laughs> it's it's silly. It's not really debt at all. It's just a ledger. And if you're thinking about it as you know debts and deficit or you know uh, debts and assets, you're, you're just talking about government created money over here. But private sector, that's our asset. So if you look at it differently from the other side of ledger, that's our national assets, not our national debt. Right. 
Um, Because what are they going to do with U.S. dollars? They're going to buy things, which is going to make the economy explode. So it's it's much ado about nothing. So I always tell the audience, you know, for your crazy Republican uncle at Thanksgiving or your neoliberal auntie, we already live in a socialist country. It's just socialism for the rich. I mean, these tax cuts are are paid by the middle and poor uh, class and the military socialists, Medicare, Social Security, all socialists. But Correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm understanding modern monetary theory, all our wars, essentially, taxes aren't paying for Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, I could go on. It's just us just continually printing those dollars, Uh, not printing literally, but what we've been talking about. So isn't that in a way MMT just continuing? It's 100%. So MMT is completely non-political, though we at Real Progressives have made it very political because we're trying to show how we can make a real progressive agenda come to be. Mm -hmm. But MMT is a description of currency, period. It's how does it work? And so when you understand how it works, which they have known very well for a very long time, you'll notice that when they need the economy to do well, they flood the military because that's the one safe place nobody's going to complain about or if only a few people complain about because everybody wants to protect the country, red, white, and blue, flags waving, guns blazing, you name it. But the reality is that's really just sort of a, a stopgap. That's, that's a place for us to flood money back into the economy because those soldiers spend money at the local stores. and they, What they've done is they've spread piece parts of every bomb, every tank, every plane into every state in the country. So everybody has a stake in the game. If they reduce spending on the military, everyone takes a bite out of that. So it's been a very, very slick stealth move, but it is absolutely proof of MMT. And MMT, you never hear anyone say anything about inflation when we spend on the military. The minute I talk about Medicare for all, everybody's talking about hyperinflation, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, whatever, you know, Weimar Republic. Oh, my God, we're all going to die. Barrels of money. None of it's true. And they've used this to perfection. This is neoliberalism at its finest. And and reality is, is that we need to stop calling it taxpayer dollars completely because it needs to be called public money. And if you think about this, taxpayer dollar what does a taxpayer look like to you is it a brown person is it a woman it you know it it, it, it is a white man with slick back hair and a big belly and a stogie that's a taxpayer or it's the church going family that's a taxpayer they don't consider those other people and that's why you've got you know xenophobia running wild that's why you've got people hating different people because they think their hard-earned tax dollars paying for that person's laziness or for this or for that reality is that the military, we just gave them what eight hundred billion and like seven hundred fifteen, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, plus an eighty extra. We get we we said you know let's give you eighty billion extra on top of that, just to make you feel a little bit better. We didn't blink, but that would have paid for free college for everyone in one fell swoop. Not one tax was raised. Not a single cut was made. It was just flat out. Yeah, here you go. You know, I'm guilty of it too. Because I say to my, I, I say to my audience, you know, that's your tax dollars, but in reality, it's really not. It, it, and you know, it's funny you say. I'm, I'm really, I'm actually really glad you said that because this is an important point. Because I punch you, I punch Lee Camp, I punch Jimmy Dore, I punch Nika, I punch everyone. Not because I don't love you, because I do love you. It's because I know we want the same exact thing. I know we want it together. And. Once you realize that we have to decouple the concept of taxpayer dollars from spending, 
we're going to see a whole new world. We're going to see suddenly great strides in solar highways and great strides in renewing the entire energy grid and health care. Forget Medicare for all, man. Let's go for the real McCoy, a full-blown free health service with dental care, you name it. I mean, the, the sky is the limit once you stop that paradigm, because that paradigm is meant, it's like the coal in the stocking, you know, at Santa. If you're not a good kid, Santa's going to put a piece of coal in your stocking. And so this is kind of like this, you know, poison pill they put in there with the taxpayer dollar. We got to get rid of that. And and it's hard. It is hard because you watch Roseanne. Roseanne was mocking her sister about the only problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. Well, Roseanne, you're wrong. You know, Margaret Thatcher, there is no public money. There's only taxpayer dollars. Queen neoliberal said it from Jump Street. Reagan, the same thing. This has been going on drilled into our heads. We all watch TV. We all listen to the radio. It's everywhere. So deprogramming society to save itself from itself is going to take a Herculean effort from people that understand this and start making a conscious effort to change the way they say things to alter the dynamic. Otherwise, we really don't have a prayer. And we've been talking about let me, one more question about the monetary sure. end. So obviously, Stephanie Kelton talks about it. I'm sure you've talked about it. The main thing is not uh, debt and deficits with MMT. It's controlling inflation. So how do you preserve that we don't um, put too much money into the economy? Because obviously, if there's too much money, prices go up. Sure. So MMT has the federal job guarantee as a primary, um, some would call it a policy feature. But if you remember the way I talked about debt and deficits and taxes, you understand that the government spends first and taxes later. This is an important point because once the government imposed a tax, it by necessity created the first unemployed person. So since unemployment is created by government, okay, employment should be created by government to offset that. And a federal job guarantee with a living wage, living benefits, just like a federal job that you can roll onto and roll off of as the economy tanks and, and goes up, whatever, uh, federally funded, locally administered is a superior automatic stabilizer that will peg the economy to labor. It strips away the capitalist stronghold over labor, so we're not fighting over crumbs anymore. It makes it so that someone like in Flint, Michigan, which is a place I know near and dear to your heart, those people could say, you're not going to give us clean water, that's fine. I'm moving down to Colorado, I'm going to smoke weed, and I'm going to drink clean water. And, you know, boom, done. So if, if, if only I, those people had the money to move. Yeah. It, so a federal job guarantee is a right to a job. And this is very key because this right here is an this stabilizer prevents so much of the uh, concerns we have with inflation by setting that su superior stabilizer. It prevents us from uh unproductive um, spending, number one. Number two, it also gives us the offset when the economy tanks. But number three, if we have to, for whatever reason, raise taxes on something, we can always choose to use what we call a Pagovian tax. In other words, a sin tax or some tax on rents or, or something to that effect. You know, land value tax is something we've heard uh, certainly heard from various people. These are opportunities. These are what we call uh, debt instruments, monetary instruments that we can use to 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 lower uh, you know inflationary costs. You can sell more bonds if you want. You can take money out of the economy any number of ways. Um, so it's uh, it's it's a problem that I don't consider to be uh, unmanageable at all. It just requires people with a brain 
and knowledgeable of the subject matter to be in control of these things. And that requires an electorate that can help vote those people into office, et cetera. And uh, uh, kind of off of uh, guaranteed jobs, what is MMT's position on universal basic income? Uh, good question. So UBI, to our standpoint, is is really quite a bad thing. It's it, to play on your name, status quo. It's a status quo thing. Um, it's like a, in my opinion, if you think of a uh, school voucher, um, you give everybody a five thousand dollar school voucher. Well, guess what? The rich are still taking their five thousand school voucher and going to a private school, and they're still leaving the poor in the poor area. There's nothing to peg that. There's no goods and services tied to that. So it's by extension inflationary. Um, the job guarantee pegs the economy to labor. It gives you that base. So no matter what happens, it's not it's not an inflationary thing. Um, not only that, but the UBI, we already have a basic income today in Social Security. Bernie Sanders ran on expanding Social Security, and it already covers disabilities and survivor benefits. It would take very little effort whatsoever to expand Social Security to account for certain conditions that we'd like to, you know, to compensate, whatever. Um, we can make it as good or bad as we'd like to. It's really up to us. But we've already got a basic income out there. We don't need a universal basic income. We just need to expand those constraints and provide a universal job to forever end involuntary unemployment. Um, I, I really believe that that right there is kind of like the best of both worlds. You have access to a basic income and you have access to a job on demand as a right of being here. Period. And should that job on demand, what, what is your position on minimum wages? Uh, you know, because well, you, you, you could you could have, uh, you know, a jobs guaranteed and still have jobs at 725. Well, so think about this. If I have a job guarantee, meaning that anybody that can work has a job guarantee, period, they go to their local area and they get a job on demand. And I set that job guarantee wage at $15 an hour. You're you're free to go work for seven twenty five an hour, I guess, in some world. But why would you do that when you have a guaranteed wage working in your community of fifteen dollars an hour? That's the wage floor now. That is your de facto minimum. And by doing that, all ships rise. Every local commerce, every local grocery store has people that can buy bread again. Imagine that. Imagine people that no longer have to scrape pennies, no longer have to sell their soul to the military no longer have to sell their soul to you know uh run in game uh, in the dark world you know trying to survive any old way they can i mean here's an opportunity to eliminate the gig economy altogether and what I do mean, you what what do you say to those uh you know fox news watching and frankly now msnbc watching uh grocery store owners who say well i'm going to have to lay people off cuz we're going to have to pay people more and we're going to make less Oh, I totally disagree because what they've done is they've added all the people that they don't ever see come into their store suddenly have $15 an hour working in their local communities to buy their goods and services. In my opinion, instead of having a Walmart on every corner, now all of a sudden we've got an opportunity once again to reinvigorate the local grocer, to reinvigorate that local community uh, store, that merchant that we've lost. We've th Think about this. I, you know, I – I oftentimes wonder why people are okay with this, but we've given up all the humanities. There is no more art in the community. There is no more beautification of anything. It's all just nuts and bolts. If it doesn't make a capitalist dollar, then it's not worth anything. I remember going to gym class every day of the week. 
I remember going to art class every day of the week. Now my kids have to remember the third Thursday they got to bring their sneakers to school because that's when they'll have gym class. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is what austerity has done. Now all of a sudden these people that have a $15 an hour job, they're paying taxes to their local and state uh, areas that do require tax dollars because they are currency users, not currency issuers like the federal government. It, it, it just radically changes society because now think about what a pr- participatory local political area would look like now that they can choose what jobs they want to compensate. Everybody would want to contribute to their local political structure. Everybody would be involved in the town square. Everybody would care again about what's going on in their local community because there's value in being present. I mean, to me, this is a win-win-win for democracy, for everyone. It's just a beautiful thing. And let me ask you, because, you know, originally we were talking about MMT focuses on is there going to be enough people producing the goods and services? Well, a big reason why why, uh, that could be an issue is when the government lets corporations write trade deals and then people in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, the South, Southwest, North, everywhere. Uh, lose their jobs to Mexico, China, and what have you. Uh, that ain't changing anytime soon. The Democrats give this lip service. Well, we just got to retrain people for the jobs of tomorrow. Well, I've talked to labor members and, and union members who did retrain. Unfortunately, there was no jobs in no. what they retrained for. So how do you have uh, enough people with the baby boomers retiring, all that, if the jobs are being offshored? Now you have automation. I mean, you, you walk into the movie theaters now, there's no tellers anymore. You walk into CVS, you, you know, there's no tellers. You just pay by machine. Uh, what is MMT's answer for that? So let's start with the Green New Deal to begin with. The Green New Deal in and of itself is going to require so much labor if we implement this. I, I just want to interrupt you for a second. I'm sure. sorry. And this is, <laughs> this is not a knock on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I happen to like. But the Green New Deal originated with the Green Party. So I think that's being lost in, in the discussion. It's not Ocasio-Cortez's Green Deal. I think hers is actually different than the Green yes. Party's. And I, uh, nobody addresses that. Uh, so the Green Party uh, should be recognized as, as the origin, Stein as the originator. Continue. Now, interesting that you say that because Melisa Figueroa, who was Jill's assistant, will tell you that it. she'd love to take credit for it, but it actually started with the eco-socialists <laughs> before oh, okay. that. So, and, and this was a great debate watching this happen. But anyway, to, to make a long story short, yes, I will say – Ocasio-Cortez did something majestic. What she did was she took something that wasn't ever going to see the light of day from from groups that we'd love to see excel and be out there. But in the 12 years that the IPCC is giving us to take action, it was never going to be out there in time for that. And Ocasio-Cortez and the Sunrise Movement advanced this thing, got it into the public space. Now it's all anybody wants to see. If you look what's trending, Green New Deal is all over the place. Pago is all over the place. People are learning about this stuff at rapid, rapid way that we never thought would have happened before. So, yeah, she, in my opinion, could have done a lot more in terms of letting them know that, hey, this titling here came from, you know, Jill Stein ran on, eco-socialists ran on. Bottom line is, is that we're taking this because we're a big tent movement. Progressives are not just Democrats. We're independents and we're Greens and we're MPPs and all. She could have done that and that would have been a great thing. Huge olive branch would have given her a lot more ammo. 
but she also has to play games with Palooza. Excuse me, I don't normally do that, but the, she's got to play games. You're, with you're, these- you're a sex. You're a sexist pig. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. She's got to play games with them too to appease, you know, the, those folks. And it's it's a terrible balance. But when you're in power, it's a lot different than when you're an activist. And I know this, and you know this. We have a lot of freedom to say what's on our mind. But when you're trying to negotiate with the people that truly have the ability to place you on a committee, you've got to do things differently. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to make excuses. I'm here to tell you the facts. And, and you, you, you've been around it enough to know yeah. that there's just only so much these folks can do. Mm-hmm. But I do want to get back to this point about the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is going to require so much labor to be able to do a World War II level you know, Marshall Plan mobilization that I would expect we would be welcoming immigrants into this country as opposed to pushing them out because we're going to need the labor just to retrofit and do all this stuff. Now, I'll tell you, one of the concerns I have is that this Green New Deal, when they talk about a job guarantee, that job guarantee is not the same thing as having really, really good green jobs. The federal government can afford to pay really, really high-end career-level positions in really incredibly technical, um, renewable, green-type uh, sciences, you name it. So the the job guarantee, which I told you is the wage floor, should not be conflated for the jobs guarantee for a Green New Deal. We've got to have both. We've got to have those really high-skilled positions, and then we've got to have an opportunity for people to do things that are carbon-neutral kind of work and their community. So, uh, you know, I want to make sure that we understand that what happens with the states, look at Texas, look at Kansas. These places have raised the flag and said, come on down here to us. We'll cut your taxes to zero. We'll give away the farm. You just come on, bring your business. So these con- these other states like Flint, Michigan and Michigan, where they had, you know, all the uh, automobiles made and, and various other rust belt areas. The businesses have been sucked out of there. They've either been uh, moved out of the country or they've been moved to one of these states that have dropped the bottom of the tax rate. And the race to the bottom is very real. So I think that part of our problem here is that as a nation, we have created an environment where we don't understand that states are currency users. The federal government is a currency issuer, similar to the EU with Greece and so forth. We could be fixing Puerto Rico. We could be fixing Flint. We could be fixing all these folks in a moment's notice. And the jobs, by putting a job guarantee in place, will give those areas the much-needed revenue they need to get back on their feet mm-hmm. um, and, and lure business back. Because, man, who doesn't want to you know, have a business in a place where people have money to spend? Right. So it, it only makes sense. It, you know, I think that's the answer is that you know, we, we suddenly revive these communities with a job guarantee. And – and I think the rest of it will take some careful consideration, but it's a good start. So we've talked a lot about the, the economic monetary. So now I, I think really what's more important is the psychology to this, because obviously the, the oligarchy and the powers that be know all of this. They know <laughs> this is how it really works. So it seems to me there would be incentive to make sure that the proletariat or, or the, you know, 70, 80 percent. Uh, consumer, you know, the economy, they say 70% of it is consumer spending. Uh, I don't even know if that's accurate, but maybe they just don't want the masses to have more money because they want to keep the system as it is, which is essentially a a new Gilded Age. 
It's definitely neo-feudalism for sure. I mean, we're we're talking about a real gap. Uh, we have a, a infographic that we use frequently that shows that when Nixon took us off of the gold standard, Bretton Woods Accord in 71, that you can see it took till about 76 to 78 under the Carter administration to really start widening. But then once Reagan hit, the wealth gap, the income gap, which is what... I mean, just unbelievable. They knew exactly what they were doing. The rest of us didn't know what we were doing. Now, the thing is that this is not just in the U.S., right? This is the, this is why neoliberalism is a global problem. It's not just a U.S. problem. Japan is on a fiat system exactly like ours. Canada, uh, China, the U.K., Australia, all these folks have the same setup. And what's happening is that America is exporting its American exceptionalism to all these places. So these countries that have universal health care, these countries that have free college, these countries that have all these great benefits, suddenly get the wild idea that it'd be good to privatize and that they can make a few bucks by, by you know, it's too expensive to have people covered for health care. We've got to find a way to change that around. So you see this happening in the UK in particular, uh, a lot of the Brexit talk, a lot of the Tories versus Labour and so forth. There's there's some really good information out there, and you can see how this global mind screw is, is not just a U.S. problem, although it's U.S.-inspired for sure. Um, and yes, they definitely want the people to crave crumbs because it allows them to create a balkanized society you've got the uber wealthy that's that nice champagne glass picture if you ever see the distribution of wealth Mm -hmm. and that little teeny little stem is all of us that little you know a couple people peak above but the real 99 percent if you look at us even the wealthy these people that are making a couple million a year even they're not uber wealthy these people are still they still got to worry whether something takes a hit or not. They're just a little bit better off than we are in the grand scheme of things. These people like Jeff Bezos, these guys can sit there and gild their toilet seat without even blinking. Every single aspect of their life is gilded, and they can buy and sell countries. I mean, it's ridiculous how they've done this. So it's they've created a situation where we think we have to fight amongst ourselves. And and that's real easy to do. And you can see that with the racism in America, you know, because people are fighting over pennies. They're, they're, they're fighting over one or two jobs and they've got us like dogs caged in a, you know, in a backyard looking at a piece of bone. And it's like, I'm going to get that bone. Well, that's why Trump has been so successful at pointing Absolutely. to the at pointing to the other. I mean, if you know, the corporate media doesn't do this. They look at the, uh, you know, Russian trolls. But I actually looked at the exit polls in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and Ohio. And the two most important topics were not WikiLeaks, Russia, the Cold War. It was immigration and trade. And That's the, right. And Trump made those people uh, some of it in fairness, some of it. Uh, I don't think immigrants are stealing their jobs, but, you know, they have been so economically decimated that it's, oh, yeah. e- it's easy to point to the other and feel like, no, it's not the corporations or people like Trump taking your jobs and money. It's the Mexicans. That's right. So let I'm going to do the, the thing that you should never do, which is Godwin's law. I'm going to violate Godwin's law real quick. Let's go back to Weimar, right? So you had the rise of Hitler. And I hate doing this. You just kind of know how much I hate doing this. But it's legit. Right. So what they did was they had a economically starved country based on the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles 
decimated German culture, decimated to the point where they had nothing going on. These people were really gray and drab and no food. And, and as they tried to print their way out of it, they had the hyperinflation because all their debt was denominated in French francs. They couldn't get out of this if they wanted to. And in comes Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler talks about bringing back German pride. He talks about reviving all these arts and the beauty of the German empire. And all of a sudden, he uses MMT too. (laughs) He figured out how to marshal resources, leveraging this. And so you can clearly see the rise and fall of the Third Reich. And you can see the real resources are what killed Germany when they got cut off from the fuel lines, when they got cut off from all the other, uh, you know, real resource funnel lines. That that was when the German Empire fell. And that right there is also how Adolf Hitler came to rise, was based on the severe austerity. They were able to pit people against each other. They were able to create uh, scapegoats. They used the Jewish people for their scapegoat. We use Mexicans and Russians and whoever else is in the line of fire, the other people, the gay people, the this people. And we've done it to great precision, and it's kept us in this box. Whereas if we did some of the things we've talked about with a job guarantee, for example, uh, Fadl Kaboob, who is of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, he is somebody you should definitely talk to. He and Matt Forstater run that place, and they they look at um, how uh, developing countries could institute a job guarantee as well. So all these countries that are struggling, the people are migrating to the U.S. for for opportunities and so forth. I mean, there's a real opportunity here to look at it globally, not just you know for the U.S. Because these folks really desperately need to understand this too, and we've kept them starving so we can plummet, you know, plunder their entire uh, ecosystem and take all the goods and services and real resources and minerals and oil and everything else, extract it right out from under their feet, all in the name of giving them some wage or some bullshit. I mean, they could easily do it themselves. It's ultimately up to us to really dig in and take that and and not listen to this other stuff because it's going to happen they're going to distract us they're going to keep us mo- you know moving against each other and the reality is is that those mexicans down there they didn't do anything wrong to us we need their labor actually um we don't need people in appalachia having to drive 50 miles to a hospital we could actually invest in hospitals for those people to have you know, good good places to get treated. We could provide them jobs, et cetera. So they're not competing with these folks. And really, at the end of the day, taking away the false scarcity narrative eliminates so much of the xenophobia, eliminates all the – basically the rhetoric that Donald Trump used to, to win his way into power. Neoliberalism created that. You know, we talk about him being a symptom of the problem. Well, he is. He was created by neoliberalism. That false scarcity narrative will create despots, and you see it all around the world. You see it down in Brazil. You see it in Macron in France. I mean, this is literally everywhere, and you see it with Theresa May in the UK. I mean, if you have eyes to see this, it'll become really clear, and and part of it is through the lens of MMT that exposes it so brightly. Um, but for most people, they just need to understand that scarcity, this this concept of we're broke and we can't have nice things, is created in such a way to keep us desperate so that the wealthy can get wealthier and the, the poor fight for the scraps. And they're too afraid to say anything because they need that scrap. 
Mm -hmm. Let me ask ask you a quick question about the Hitler example. And by the way, to the nearest Tandon crowd, neither of us are, you know, uh, idolizing Hitler. Bad, awful, genocidal. Um, But how did how did uh, Hitler use MMT? Because I thought with MMT, you would have to have a government that could really has unlimited money itself. Isn't aren't those countries on, you know, the euro or on, you know, not their own uh, currency in many cases? So what Hitler did was he repurposed the Reichsmark. I mean, he basically reinstituted this. Once a country can actually enforce a tax, once it can enforce its own currency, all bets are off. Now it can do what it wants. And so Hitler was expert at managing the ability to bring that back. I mean, you look at the Confederacy, for example, they had hyperinflation in the South because they couldn't enforce the damn tax. So they ended up losing the where they couldn't marshal resources because they couldn't actually sustain their own tax base. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Germany figured out how to do that. And so um, it, it's not a good point. Yeah, we're not idolizing Hitler here. We're just simply talking the economic underpinnings here. Um, and he was able to marshal real resources, and you know, by doing that, he was able to keep his, you know, army growing and expanding, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. has done this to great precision as well. If you look at our empire, as we've stretched around the globe, we've managed to do a very similar thing. We've invested heavily in the military. We've expanded our reach of our our overall uh, ability to dig in and and buy things uh, and get things and extract things the way we want them. Um, it's pretty much the same exact scenario, just on a different scale. And let me ask you, because, you know, the Young Turks, when I was there, and obviously they're, whatever you think now, their existing, you know, original DNA was we got to get money out of politics, which I agree with. Um, But let's say money was taken out of politics tomorrow, and, you know, corporations weren't allowed to spend unlimited amounts, and the Koch brothers had caps, and there was no PACs and there was no Citizens United, um, would the government then be like, oh, okay, MMT, and we, you know, we need to, uh, because to me, money in politics is a, is a toxin and it needs to be removed, but I don't know if it's the magic elix- elixir that would, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi would then be like, well, deficits and debt don't really matter, it's inflation. No, no, it wouldn't. And that's why we focus so heavily on what we focus on at Real Progressives and, and the rest of the modern monetary theorists around the world. We, we, we recognize that the electorate doesn't understand either. They, 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 they have expertly made us all believe the federal government is like your household income. And they've made us believe that we're, you know, if you can't get HBO because you don't have $15 a month to spend on HBO, then you've got to cut somewhere because that's the way the, the that's just economics, man. Crack an economics book, dude. You don't know economics. And this is kind of what they've instilled in us. And, and you look around and Obama, we have to take out a credit card from the People's Republic of China. That's immoral, you know, and all this other nonsense. And you got a video of Jank going, yeah, we've got to, of course, get rid of the deficit. Of course we've got to. It's a moral crisis. And you've got uh, uh, every one of them, Bill O'Reilly, Sarah Palin, all the right say it. And then you've got over here all the left saying it too, the so- you know, so-called left. It, 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 it's a pervasive thought it's it's the pre predominant way of thinking the orthodoxy is actually violence there was a study out of the uk here recently that showed that austerity is literally social murder and this social murder has been instilled in us from the calvinistic work ethic 
from every aspect of American culture. We have born and bred this thing into society. So it's going to be a real challenge with or without money in politics. Because the people, think about this. If you talk to one of your friends and says, hey, we should get rid of student debt. Then let's just say for hypotheticals that they went ahead and paid 50000 for their student debt. And they're like, well, I paid mine. Why should we give them theirs? So American culture has a long way to go to getting straight. So I don't think money out of – certainly get rid of money in politics. But you will end up with the same exact thing you have today because that's what the people think. And that's why the politicians say things completely incorrectly because they got to get elected. And the people think that, they, that the federal government should be run like their household budget and the cycle continues. So our job is to disabuse of that. Will we be successful? I hope so. Um, it's a lot of work, man. I'll uh, I'll make a point before my last question. Did you ever see The Big Short, the movie? Oh, absolutely, yes. I, I really I really think what MMT needs is like a Selena Gomez to yes. like she she was explaining credit default swaps in a way that you know people could understand and things like that. Unfortunately, the way our society works is you need a, you know some some type of celebrity. Uh, not not our crowd, but for the masses, you, you yes. need it to be fun and broken down in any any. Bits. I mean, most of the people don't even know the history of this country. They don't really teach the truth about genocide of the Native Americans and things like that. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the missing link with MMT to the masses, uh, yes. because I think that could be very helpful if you had a maybe there is. And I just are not aware, you know, celebrity ambassadors uh, that could put this into the mainstream conversation. I don't know about for 2020, but frankly, you don't even have really Bernie talk like this. Well, so I'm so glad you brought this up, too. I mean, we've got Stephanie who's making her tour around. And, you know, Which, she's by the way, I, not, not that you're second fiddle, but I asked her several times. No response. So she must be very busy. Well, she is very busy. She's been traveling around the world. And, you know, she is a hard I mean, I have a hard time booking her on our show at all. And mm -hmm. I, I, I carry their water. Yeah. You know? um, but but to be fair. You know, I remember 10 years ago when I started learning MMT, and there was a hearty band of 10, 15, 20 people talking about it in chat rooms and stuff like that. And, you know, over the course of time, um, you know, when, when we, you know, Bernie had put Stephanie into the, uh, she became the chief of the Senate Budget Committee for the Democrats in the Senate. And that was a big move for us. We suddenly had somebody in the, you know, power lovers there making bold statements. And then when we found out she was going to be his economic advisor for the campaign, that's what was the impetus for creating Real Progressives to support Stephanie. Mm -hmm. Bernie was secondary. And then eventually, you know, obviously Bernie has been doing everything he can to position Stephanie. Um, and Jane, you know, does great interviews. And now Stephanie is directly consulting with people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with Ro Khanna and others. And interestingly enough, Ro Khanna, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Tulsi Gabbard are the only three people that actually voted against PAYGO. Um, so you, you, not a small thing there. You know, this is Sanders Institute where Stephanie is a senior fellow at. And, and so MMT is starting to gain footholds in the progressive movement in a big way. And it should. It should be real easy to grab hold of because it is the pathway to hope. But 
we do need to expand. But like I said, I remember when it was 15 people, hardy people with nerdy glasses and, and just not giving a crap. Now, all of a sudden, you know, we got articles going out there saying the rock star appeal of MMT and you know, all this other stuff. And it's because you got guys like Warren Mosler and you've got Stephanie and Pavlina and Randall Ray and Bill Mitchell and some of the other big names that are out there. Uh, but also because we came in with a sledgehammer and unapologetically drop bombs and people are like that guy grumble i can't stand him it's like well hey how do you think it feels to be the guy whose head butts into the brick wall first i'm the slammer you know i'm there they get to come in after the fact and caress your cheek and tell you how sweet you are i had to break through the wall to make you see this right and so you know it's growing it is growing tremendously not fast enough. And we do need exact. I'm hoping that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can be that face, that, that voice, that very, you know, energetic, uh, charismatic Latina woman who just is bold and unafraid and talks clear MMT. I would love that. She's doing bits and you have to watch what she says. It's very crafty. She'll talk about why are we asking how to pay for these programs when we never asked to pay for this? Right. Why are you, you know, very, very genius, trying to use things that people understand as opposed to trying to use the terminologies that us nerdists do with MMT. And so I think there's a, a language barrier there, a framing barrier. Uh, there's a lot of things they're going to take to to do this. Um, you know, And honestly, th- what you're doing right here with me, I can't thank you enough. This is the kind of exposure that you know we work 24 by 7 in, and, and you can clearly see we're fighting for the right causes. It's just a matter of getting the word out to people so that they can take action on it. And so I really appreciate you doing this. Well, that's a good segue because, uh, you know, we're recording during the week, but this interview is airing uh, during my Sunday marathon. And I, uh, you know, you and I are basically just like grassroots guerrilla media, you know, different companies, but same principle. And um, what I've been telling my audience, because I have no shame, I'd rather beg the audience for for funds than any plutocrats or special interests but what i always say to the audience is you know a large part of why these this propaganda these misnomers and this these false narratives and these language barriers happen is because the corporate media is essentially free public relations for the oligarchy there has not been counter programming to corporate propaganda I mean, yeah, the Young Turks has existed. I don't really want to get into them for obvious reasons, but there really has not been uh, a, a wider, independent, truly independent media to put out things like this, to debunk the propaganda now they're putting out about Bernie and, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is doing... Uh, they don't want to talk about any policy. They want to talk about what she's wearing or a video she danced in college and, you know, bullshit, bullshit. But I've basically said to my audience that... Uh, obviously, every person is different, and we, neither you nor I, if somebody's living paycheck to paycheck, don't give us money. But um, I've said, you got to factor into your budget. Like, this is not, you know, media and independent media to me is not just like cherry on, cherry on the top if you could do it. It's like, it's a responsibility of all of us to, to fund this because you and I, uh, real progressives, uh, real prog- status quo, real progressives, Neither of us are going to get rich. That's why, not why we're in it. But we need well, uh, well-funded independent media 
to counteract the propaganda. I don't want to go cover Bernie's campaign to get Bernie elected. That's not my job. I want to cover Bernie's campaign so the truth that there is an actual movement in this country sees the light of day. Because if there's yes. not real independent media out there, uh, you know, look at uh, me and when I, what I did at the Young Turks. I don't, I don't mean this arrogantly, but I hope I played a part in getting Standing Rock out there, of getting Flint out there, uh, of keeping these not normal situations out there and waking more people up. Best thing that I ever heard was when I was at Standing Rock, people coming up to me saying, I saw your videos and I got in the car. Like, yeah. that's amazing. Um, yes. So I guess this long-winded thing is, uh, I'm asking you, what is the role of independent media? I mean, listen, I have no shame. I want people <laughs> to fund. I'm not, I'm not taking meetings with plutocrats, so we need funds. I want yes. people to look at real progressives and help out if they can. Uh, and you could tell people how to do that. But what's the role of independent media? Because frankly... I don't hear the Young Turks talking about this. I don't hear the Intercept talking about this. I don't hear Democracy Now! talking about this. I hear a lot of Russia, a lot of Trump, a lot of Stormy Daniels, and bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Well, you you and I talked about this off air, and I think it's really important. I mean, it, it costs a lot of money to do this, even even as a hobby. But when you really want to do this correctly, it takes a lot of time, too. So this needs to be full-time work. It needs to be a priority, not just for the people, but, it, but it's a moral imperative to present these stories in an unvarnished way, in a way that tells the truth. Because if you keep allowing corporate interests to taint how we see the world, we're always going to see it that way no matter what. That's the aesthetic. And what we're providing is a service that exceeds the news. It goes beyond just crafting the news from a different angle. It actually goes about filling in the entire uh, void, if you will, that, that really imbalanced walk that we have, the questions, that weirdness that we feel in the world when we don't have all the answers. And we're in the process, you're in the process, all of us are in the process of trying to fill that void. And it takes money. I mean, just think about this. Just to edit videos alone, the, the software costs a lot of money. The time it takes and the skill level it takes to edit video, to make it so that it's bearable to watch, to make it so that it, it's respected by the, the people that really need to hear it. I mean, this this takes time and effort and money. So in my mind, putting your best foot forward to provide the truth isn't just a matter of, hey, I can sit here with some headphones and do whatever. It's a matter of providing something that people will pay attention to because it's got to be useful too. So that costs money. It costs time. It costs energy. And I, I think that our job is really to be truth tellers, number one. Number two, to provide a service to the people that are wondering, why are they not hearing the truth? Why are they not being served? And we're giving them an opportunity to see the world through through a different lens. And I think that's extremely important and valuable. And it should be compensated. Uh, there shouldn't be an apology there. You know, you're not apologizing when you pay money to CNN or PBS or Democracy Now!, why in the world are you apologizing for asking folks to help support this? First, I, I shouldn't even be apologizing for asking folks to support Real Progressive. It's it's a service. It's important. And if you value it, you'll put your money where your mouth is. Well, I also think to give the audience a little bit behind the curtain, and I'm sure you have stories like sure. this. So, for example, here here's a catch-22. So – not that I don't love Jimmy, not that I don't love Kyle or other commentators. I think they're essential. But I, you know, I'm, I report information, so I'm trying to find out things, not just, not just comment on them, uh, which, again, I think they do great work. So to just have the service 
to put in uh, freedom of information requests every month. Uh, it's called Muckrock. It costs a little over $100 a month. Okay, $100 a month. Then when we put in our freedom information of requests, so for example, I put in a freedom of information request in Flint uh, on the Flint water crisis into Snyder, his administration, the Department of Environmental Quality. I put in a very specific uh, information request, and I know if I would have gotten the emails, I would have broke a massive story because I've covered it long enough to know what's in those emails. Uh, you, get a, you get a bill back, literally for, for freedom of information, $6,000. Wow. So I don't think, not, it's not the audience's fault, but there's also a price on information for us. So it's, it's a totally convoluted system. I don't know why people don't talk more about this, but freedom of information requests cost money. For the New York Times, okay, you know, six grand, we'll pay it. Um, but for independent media, it's, we need to build up, uh, if you're trying to break news and get to the truth, we need to build up. I mean, I just got uh, an email from HostGator, which is a processing server for our website, you know, $200 a month for that. And we have shitty bandwidth. I mean, there's a lot of those monthly costs, which I'm sure you have at Real Progressive. <laughs> I'm not saying this to make the audience feel bad or like pity us. So, you know, like we're not asking for money for like a, a nice steak dinner or vegetarian, whatever. Uh, we're asking dinner. We're, we're asking for funds for me in my case to get in the field. But also there's a lot of marketing costs per month, a lot of social media costs. Facebook has basically decimated uh, and suppressed real progressives. I don't even bother on Facebook much anymore because their algorithm change, it, it might as well be us broadcasting into a cave. Nobody even knows when we're live. So, right. you know, you have to pay for ads just to get half the audience used to have. Uh, what are your thoughts on what I'm talking about so the audience knows for real independent media, it really is David Firth's Goliath financially? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you bring up the algorithms. I remember doing a live stream, a stupid one, like just walking down the street with the camera going like this. And I would have 1,800 likes. It had been seen 60, 70,000 times. And, you know, it was no big deal. You're like, wow, man, it was shared like 3,000 times. Now, if you get 150 likes or something on a, on a stream, you're like, God, I finally made it through that algorithm. It's ridiculous. You get 80 or 90 comments, which means you're not getting a lot of interaction. You're not getting a lot of what they call engagement, which is how Facebook evaluates. But the flip side, and this is something that I've noticed too, is that if you post a mainstream article out of nowhere, all of a sudden you're back to old school algorithms. Suddenly you've got 1,800 likes. <laughs> you've got all this stuff. And it's like, huh, I wonder if there's a way to crack into that. But there's really not. They're really good at keeping you down. And so the, there's a lot of other platforms we got to get on. Um, you know, if you want to get a Roku channel or if you want to get a, something over there to Netflix or Amazon Prime, you're talking about a lot of money. Uh, you're, you know, just to to get past uh, the paywalls and and so forth, it's tremendous amount of money. Um, you know, d something like LexisNexis. I mean, just getting information, white papers, uh. being able to do proper research. You're talking about a lot of money. Some of these J store type. Things. I mean, yes, there are do, some. Do you, do you know the Do you know the fight me and my business partner had over LexisNexis because she wants it so do i but i said we don't have thousands of dollars for lexus nexus right now and i can't pay any i put a lot of my money uh which isn't much into the company so yeah i mean continue everything that we're trying to do costs money 
And, you know, we've like just with our own team, we've got like 100 volunteers that work at Real Progressives and because we're doing more than media. We've we've got a four pillar thing that we're trying to do. We want to create a think tank for the common man. We want to create an education platform. We want to create a activist base and we also want to create a media wing. So we want it all to work together. And that takes a lot of boots on the ground. It takes a lot of project management and software and stuff. People don't think about how much it costs, how much time it takes to do these things. But you're competing against the Pete Peterson Foundation. You're competing against these groups. Uh, MoveOn.org, stupid funded, way funded, big time funded from people that you probably wouldn't want funding your organization. No. You know, and uh, you look, you look, and it's it's no wonder that we're at such a disadvantage. Um, it, it really is a harsh reality. To, to even – I mean just look at the Adobe cloud. I mean I know this is silly, but the Adobe cloud is must-have for anybody that's trying to produce videos uh, of any caliber whatsoever. And you're talking about a lot of money. You're talking about you know, 50, 60 bucks a month just to have access to these say, podcasting, Adobe Audition. You're talking about a lot of time, effort, skill. These people, they, they, you know, if you can't pay them, they're moving on. So yeah. you got to have people that really believe in your mission. So they're doing it for free and, and love. It, it, it's funny you say that because uh, Ty, our, our photojournalist, camera editor, on air, everything, um, we kind of have a playful back and forth because I said, I don't think you have any concept of money, Tommy. Uh, I love him. We're brothers. But because every time he tells me this is what it's going to cost, then there's add-ons that we need, and you know this. And it's not just Adobe we need. We need X, Y, Z, Y. And I say, I know we need all this, but I I can't print money. I can't invent money that doesn't exist. Mm. Um, but like with with independent media, I mean, especially in the age of censorship, which I wanted to talk to you about. You know, we were talking about Hitler and those kinds of things. I'm not comparing what Facebook is doing to that. But if anybody studies fascism, one of the key curse precursors to fascism is censorship. Yes. And it's, you know, we're talking about it as like, oh, it's it's kind of an expense. of we, It's a reality we have to deal with, but it's immoral. I mean, Facebook is a private company. Uh, I don't even know if they're going to be around in 10 years, but that's a different story. YouTube, private company. Technically, they could do whatever they want. doesn't make it right because right. essentially YouTube, for example, I, I launched my channel in beginning of March. Uh, we're at almost at 25,000 subscribers, which is really remarkable and Thank you to the people watching. But frankly, I know YouTube because I, I grew a very fairly successful channel at TYT. Uh, if, if, if we weren't having 75% of the people never getting notifications when we're live, if I, I literally was sick one week, I never nap, can't fall asleep during the day, fell asleep for 45 minutes, I wake up, we had 300 subscribers purged. Oh my God. Like this, Jimmy's had this, we're uh, bots. Whatever. I mean, it's not so subtle. They don't. This you don't hear this from CNN's channels, the Washington Post, MSNBC's YouTube channels. You hear it from independent media. And by the way, it's not just politics. You hear this from sports people. Um, it's it's independent, non-corporate broadcasters are being censored. And whether it's private companies doing it or not, it is it is what um, really really stringing it to MMT. It is what really replenishes the brainwashing of society. Absolutely. That's yes. what censorship does. So when I or Jimmy or Kyle or you are bitching about Facebook and YouTube, it's not bitching because like, oh, our views are down. It's bitching because 
who's pay, who's, who really, in my case, pays the consequences? Yes, me and our company. The people of Flint aren't getting their story out to, the, to what they normally would. Uh, same thing for MMT. It's not getting out there to as many people because you cannot have uh, a protest movement in America if more people don't wake the fuck up. Absolutely. You know, real quick, I want to touch on this because this is something you and I could even look at together at some point. You've been frontline Flint, Michigan from day one. And Flint, Michigan is a real case in point and what we're talking about as well. You look at Puerto Rico, you put the two of those together, and those are two very, very American issues that we have got right here before us. The wildfires in uh, California as well as another prime example of austerity in action. We have so many things that we could be taking care of. And our media, our efforts are are really stifled by a lack of funds, by a lack of access. And, And quite frankly, there's a cause and effect to that. If people understood more about what the options were, if people had access to more information other than what they're being fed by the corporate media, they might be able to do different things with their activism. They might be able to do different things with their politician. And it might make for a different movement, if you will, in terms of actually affecting real change. It's not just entertainment value. We're talking about real actionable information. And and I think that that's something to keep in mind as we're talking about the costs and, and the moral uh, regard for why we do this. That there's a real cause and effect here. I mean, if you don't know it, you're not going to act on it. But if you know it, you might act on it. And, and quite frankly, I think that you see the yellow vest movement, you see some of these other things happening. What would happen if they had access to better information? What would happen if many of our voters and, and the people that support us in general had access to more information? I, I think that there's a real cause and effect in changing the powers that be and changing what's going on in the country. Um, you know, we talk about getting money out of politics. Well, we could neuter money in politics if we had access to the the audience that wants to hear what we're saying. Mm-hmm. We could literally eliminate so much of the uh, money in politics by just bypassing them and getting the word out through alternative media. So I just wanted to throw yeah. that in there. Well, I'll end with this point. And I always uh, this is kind of what I say at the end of every, every broadcast, because this is what I've experienced on the road. And I also use my dad and mother as an example. So I always say the majority of people in this country actually are not lacking compassion, even Republicans. Majority of people have no fucking idea what's happening. None. And my father, for example, when I was at Standing Rock, I mean, my dad watches Fox News. He, he's, he voted for Trump. He, he's one of those. Not a bad guy, just misinformed. Uh, and my mother basically, she doesn't know much politically. She's always asking me. Well, when I was showing both of them videos from Standing Rock of tear gas being sprayed at Native Americans banging drums and uh, grenades and all these things, again, my dad thinks the police could do no wrong. I mean, he's one of those. He said, why isn't Obama doing anything about this? Why, why, why isn't this out there more? I mean, it's anecdotal, but I have seen this over and over, even from conservatives. Let me tell you something. Conservatives, believe it or not, care if they're drinking clean water. And yes. conservatives care if their land is being stolen via eminent domain for pipelines. And the examples go on and on. So what I see, obviously, Real Progressives uh, does different things than us, but it's all the same concept, is yep. getting stories out there that no one else is covering, especially in a, a unique and authentic way. Uh, it costs money, but more importantly, it actually leads, if you do it right, to activism. And that's, yes. that's the goal. Uh, what are your thoughts, Dan? 
I, I, like you said it perfectly. I agree. My mother voted for Trump. Uh, my brother voted for Trump. The whole gang came from Trump land, and they are people that, when given different information, have a different perspective. They love they love me. They love my son, who's got special needs, um, and they don't want bad things to happen to him. But when they watch Fox News and everything else, they got a different perspective of the world when they see different things. My mom has talked to me offline many times saying, I had no idea that's how it worked. Oh, my God. I had no idea that's how it worked. And so, you know, we, we, we have a real opportunity to meet the 99%, not just Democrats or Republicans, but the whole, the whole enchilada. They want good things. They just don't have access to information. And uh, how could people watch slash support Real Progressives? Thank you. So on Facebook, we are, um, you know, we're on Facebook. We have a group and we have a page. We also currently have a website, which is www.realprogressivesusa.com. Soon we'll be moving to www.realprogressives.org. Um, we're also on YouTube. Our, our, our YouTube channel um, is Real Progressives. You can find us on Twitter. You can find myself on Twitter as well. I'm Austerity is Murder. Um, and uh, that's pretty much it right now. Mm -hmm. And please, if you can find us on Patreon, we'd love to have you as a supporter. We definitely need uh, need a lot of help on Patreon, and you, we have a PayPal as well. So look forward to any kind of financial help. And if you want to volunteer, we are building out our activism pillar as we speak. So we would love to have your help in building out home groups and chapters across the country. And I, I actually lied because uh, I'll make one more point. Uh, people should know, like, I'm plugging real progressives yes. while trying to plug myself for an hours-long marathon. And I think we don't see that enough in independent media. Not that people don't care, but obviously, like, we all have to eat. So it's not like uh, independent media is always like, go donate to that person. But I think it's important. Uh, obviously, the audience only has so much extra money to go around, but I do think it's important uh, to dip your toe into each pool um, and, and support everybody you can because it's not charity. It, it, it really is uh, to get an end result. Uh, so I encourage people to check you guys out and to uh, yeah, support financially if they can. You're a good man, Jordan. Thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it immensely. I think, we'll have, I think we're going to see more of you because uh, I definitely can't pay you, but I'd like your thoughts more often as we sure. uh, go through now, I mean, this Democratic Party essentially parroting the Republican Party as usual. So thank you, sir. Yeah. You got it, man. Thank you. No problem.